KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. And today is Friday, Friday, Chet, Chet Tevet, Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Parshat Vayigash. This is Ezra Beck. We have a program for Erev Shabbat. Tomorrow, Tet Tevet, or perhaps Sunday, Yot Tevet, is the Yotzeit, the Yom HaPtira of Ezra Sofer. There's a list that appears in the tour, which is taken from the Gaonic literature, of days during the year which tzadikim mit animbahem, ta'anit tzadikim. These are days which were fast days, but not obligatory fast days. Because the community as a whole didn't fast, but individuals, individuals would fast on these days. And uh, some of the days that are listed there, the reason isn't known. As the term itself says, we don't know the reason. One of them is tet B'tevet. Of course, it's just on a Shabbat, so in any event we wouldn't fast. But Tet B'tevet was a fast day. Uh, and the Torah says he doesn't know the reason. In the Slichas books, there were books of Slichot for all these days, uh, not very common today, we don't see them, but the books exist. So there it's written that Tet B'tevet is the Yotzeit Yom Aptira of Ezra HaSofer. And that's why this was a fast day, Sheyichidim Mitanimbo, a day of individual fasting, Tanit Tzadikim. In the, this was in the Ashkenazi uh, Slichos books. In the, uh, in the Slichos books of the Sfaradim, they also had Slichot for this day. But there it's written that actually his Yotzeit, the day of Ezra Sofer's death, was Yud B'Tevet, the 10th day of Tevet. But the 10th day of Tevet is a Tanit anyhow. It's a fast day of Asar B'Tevet. And so they wanted to have a separate day for Ezra, and therefore they put it back one day to Tet B'tevet. In other words, they agree that Tet B'tevet is celebrated, so to speak, is fasting because of Ezra Sofer. But the question is whether he actually died on this day or the day afterwards. So in any event, uh, I think it's worthwhile at least mentioning the day. I don't know anyone, nor have I even heard of anyone, who fasts on the days listed in the tour, including Tet B'tevet, which is undoubtedly difficult since it's the day before another fast. Um, but even if we don't fast, the fact that there was a minhag Yisrael quoted in the Poskin to in, in, in one way or another to take cognizance of this day, I think it's more than of historical interest that we should note it. Uh, the Jewish community commemorated the death of Ezra Sofer and we should do so as well even if we don't, even if we don't fast. Ezra Sofer uh, is not merely a biblical character. He's understood by Chazal as being he who uh, is responsible for the uh, state of Torah Sheba al Remember, Ezra was not a Nafi, he was not a prophet. He's called a Sofer, which means perhaps that he counted the letters of the Torah, but he was responsible for giving the final form uh, together with Anshay Knesset Agdullah to the, to the Tanakh. So he basically finalized Torah Shebichtav and Tanakh, although he himself is not a Navi, and he then began, he inaugurated the period of where Torah Shebaalpeh would be dominant. Chazal say that Lulei lo nitna Torah b'imat shal Moshe, and Moshe Rabbeinu not given the Torah, then Ezra would have been the person to to be responsible. He's Rabban shall call yourself. He's Rabbeinu, Ezra Rabbeinu, not just Ezra, Ezra Hasofer, and that apparently is the reason why. Uh, his death was was commemorated, was was noticed because it's it's a it's a, a milestone in Torah Torah history, in Jewish history, the end of the Tanakh, 
the beginning of the development and the flowering of Torah Shabbat Peh as the as the central focus point of Torah of Torah existence. And today's uh, today's parsha is Parshat uh, Vayigash. In the beginning of the parsha, Yehuda when he appeals to Yosef, so his his clinching point seems to be he says that. Look, if Benjamin doesn't go home with me, then Yaakov will die. When he will see that we come home, and the lad is not with us, he will die from, from grief. So the Mephashim asks, why is that supposed to make a difference to, to Yosef? And the Akeda, the Baal Akeda, Rabbi Yitzhak Arama, uh, explains that in true justice, or in no, it's not legal justice, but in true justice, then if someone is punished, you have to take into account not only whether he merits it, but other people who will be influenced by it. So that's the way God does justice. When God punishes, He has to take into account not merely whether you're guilty, but, but the people around you who are going to suffer when you are punished in one way or another. So do they deserve this punishment? Of course, legal justice isn't that way. And not just you know, non-Jewish legal justice. Halacha is not that way. Someone is, 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 is chayav. Someone is... Uh, been uh, is a criminal and he's been judged and condemned then he's punished the big difference whether he has a wife a children grandmothers uh, the punishment is to him and the surroundings suffer automatically as I'll say though that God does take into account and in fact will somehow take into account even when we're doing the punishment but we ourselves do not take it into account so true justice should take that into account and that's what Yudah was saying the Balakeda says to yourself that you you're a king. You're not a judge here. You're, you're trying to do what's right. And therefore, it could be, of course, Judah doesn't accept this, but it could be that Benjamin is deserving of punishment, but Yaakov is not deserving of punishment. And the fact is that if, if Benjamin is kept in Egypt as a slave to Yosef, then Yaakov will suffer, Yaakov will die. And that is undeserved. And therefore, you should not do it as well. Uh, this is a very famous comment of the Akedah. It's used to explain many things. Of Achan Basiman once used it to explain a strange Yerushalmi in Ta'anit. Mesechet Ta'anit deals with um, the fasts. Most, much, much of the Mesechet deals with the fasts that were done in order that there should be rain. Uh, thank God, this week, the rain came to Eretz Israel. In fact, yesterday here in Gush Etzion, which is basically the highest... Uh, uh, Jewish inhabited point in Israel outside of the Hermon, uh from here to Hebron so we had a uh, we had a snowstorm it's the first one in two or three years uh, and as I sit now I'm looking out the window in the studio here in the yeshiva so the hills are the sun has come out this morning all the hills the Kosh Tzurim the Veidaniel everything is blanketed in this beautiful white cover it's not a snowstorm by by North American standards there's six, uh, six centimeters. It's two and a half inches of snow. But for us, it's pretty unusual. Uh, the roads were closed last night. My wife never made it home. hope she comes home today sometime. And, but we had, uh, thank God, close to 100 millimeters of rain in the last day. But before that, there had been a month without rain. And we'd already begun to say the special tefillot for rain. Because Eretz Israel lives on rain. It doesn't rain for a month at the beginning of the winter. We're in deep trouble. Uh, and there's a whole series of ta'aniyot, a fast, that are done if a certain period of time goes by. So you have one fast and another fast. 
uh, Israel lives always from the time of the Gemara till today lives on lives on rain. So the Gemara there is describing how they were fasting and they were praying. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai told the Chazan to go and say the following: Say to God that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai tells the Chazan, say Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai would like to take a haircut, and and he doesn't have kayach, he doesn't have the strength to to suffer anymore. And that's what the Chazan would say, and then the rain would come. So, in other words, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was fasting with the the whole kila. But he was old, and he was tired, and he couldn't take it anymore. So he said, tell God, he said to Chazim, tell God that I'm suffering too much. I can't take this fasting. And sure enough, that works. And if a God brings rain. Chazim asked, I don't understand. If they're fasting, it's because there's no rain. If there's no rain, it's imminent famine. Imminent famine. People are going to starve to death. The whole world is suffering immensely. And, and God is, is bringing a famine nonetheless. He's, he's holding back the reins. So because Rabbi Yochum and Zachary wants to take a haircut and, and he's getting tired of, of, of all this fasting, that's going to make the difference. Whatever you're going to say is a great tzaddik, but, but why is his suffering more important in the eyes of God and the suffering of the entire world on a much, much higher level? The answer is, Rabbi said, if God is bringing a drought, it's because it's deserved. The world is suffering, but God wants them to suffer. There is suffering in the world, and we assume, at least as, a, as, an, opening, uh, as an opening point, that it's deserved. And if, if God brings a, a drought to the general population, it's because the general population has sinned, and it's deserving. But if Yochanan ben Zakkai, he's an innocent bystander. He hasn't sinned, presumably. He knew he hadn't sinned. And he's an innocent bystander, but he's getting caught up in this as well. So, the Balakeda explains that that's a point that can be raised for divine justice. That not merely the guilty can suffer, but if, as a side effect of their suffering, someone else will suffer who is not guilty, that can be a reason to cancel the punishment. And that's what Yochum Mazakai did, and therefore, sure enough, the rain came, even to the undeserving, but because of, Yochum Mazakai shouldn't have to continue fasting and not be able to take the haircut that he wished to take. Our guest today is Harav Moshe Eberman, Ram in Yeshivat Haratzion, and he will share with us some thoughts for this uh, before the Shabbat. Harav Eberman. What makes a great proper leader? That is a question that uh, many of us ask ourselves. A question that uh, challenges. Many people in their aspiration to lead, whether within their smaller family, community, or even in the broad sense of national leadership. I believe that many answers can be suggested to what constitutes proper leadership. Today, we'll attempt to focus on two criteria two criteria that are clearly visible within the situation of two brothers, both aspiring to leadership, and both initially failing in their attempts, while later succeeding because they managed to find that proper balance of criteria and personal traits. The two brothers are obviously Yosef and Yehuda. 
Yosef and Yehuda, who, if we go back just two weeks to Parshat Vayeshev, we find they are at ends. They have, as Rav Salvechik suggests, basically an ideological disagreement. Yosef has expressed through his dreams, Yosef dreams of a new world order. Yosef understands or perceives that that which exists within his family, the way of life that his family lives, is not an everlasting situation. That circumstances will change and will demand them to confront new realities, new challenges. Yosef is basically calling upon his brothers and his father to understand that that challenge faces them and that they would be correct in preparing for that new reality rather than wait till it confronts them and then it may be too late it may be tragic in its results Yosef understands that the simple life of shepherds that he and his brothers are familiar with the life that their father has led and in a certain sense has followed in the footsteps of his father, his grandfather, that is going to come at some point, the point unknown at this time, to an end. And Yosef understands that they have to prepare themselves for a reality of different occupation, of different cultural settings, a world that is somewhat different. Here, Yosef presents, as reflected in his dreams, a world where they no longer are shepherds, nomads, but rather are limited in the area that they travel. They remain in one place and work the land. We are collecting bundles of wheat. The bundles of wheat is a form of sustenance. Bundles of wheat are a type of agricultural effort, but it is not a way of life of shepherds. Here, there is a given field, a place where they work, a limited area in which they confine themselves to. Additionally, Yosef tells of his dreams, He is focused on the sun, the moon, the stars, a world of study, of science, a world that aspires to new areas, a world that deals with new technologies. 
Yosef understands that this is something that will confront them in the near future. And he calls upon his brothers and his father to prepare. But they, as the Rav explains, feel that we should stay with what we have always lived with what we know. Should circumstances change, then we will have to deal with it. Why expose ourselves to different cultures, cultures that will challenge our existence, cultures that will endanger us when we can remain for now with what there is, what is known, what is safe, what is stable. In this debate, Yosef is one side. The other side is unknown in the early part of Parshat Vayeshev. Only later do we discover that one of the leading people in opposing Yosef is Yehuda. Yehuda believes in the ideology of remaining as we are, and let us worry about changes in the future. Both Yosef and Yehuda aspire to lead their families and as such take positions of leadership for the future nation of Am Yisrael. Yosef is an ideologist. He has dreams. He has a vision. And he wants to give it an opportunity to thrive, to be implemented, and to succeed. That opportunity is given to Yosef in an odd manner later when he is sent down to Mitzrayim. But while Yosef is an aspiring leader and an ideologist, he is yet a young lad, and as such, he is also somewhat irresponsible. Yosef, instead of building up his vision, is too busy in confronting and contending with his brothers to the extent that the Torah tells us, Vayave Yosef dibatam elavihim. This is a form of immaturity, a form of irresponsibility, which only brings about, as we read, strife, tension, rather than promote his ideology. Yehuda, too, is a striving leader. And when, later on, the brothers find themselves with an opportunity to get back at Yosef, who has received all along the support, the love of their father, Yosef, on the one hand, recommends to his brothers not to fall into a trap of killing Yosef. Yehuda is attempting to take leadership and says, Ma'betzakina 
Why should we be involved in the murder? Let's get him off our hands in a simpler manner. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelim. When Yehuda speaks up, he is taking his place as a leader, to some extent even superseding Reuven, who took the initial step of preventing his brothers to, of immediately killing, actively killing Yosef, but throwing them, throwing him into a pit. Yehuda takes a step of, let's prevent even that. But at the same time, Yehuda is completely callous to the effect, to the hardship that this will present his father. As we see, Yehuda says nothing about how to relate and how to deal with Yaakov. He is totally oblivious to the hardship that will confront Yaakov. And only when they have sold Yosef and the brothers suddenly realize, wait a second, what will happen when our father asks us? What will happen when we show up without Yosef? Only then is the suggestion made that let's deceive Yaakov, allow him to think that Yosef has been killed in an accident, killed by an animal. Both brothers who have attempted to take leadership find themselves later demoted from positions of leadership. Immediately after this, we find that the Torah says, And Chazal teach us that the brothers have demoted Yehuda from his position to an extent that Yehuda has to leave his family and has to learn to live independently. And here Yehuda's whole ideology is challenged. Yehuda attempts to bring up his children in his ideology, and yet fails miserably. Both his older sons, the Torah tells us, Vayhi er b'chol Yehuda la be'inei Adonai, Er is seen as evil, as bad, as lacking in the eyes of God. And so too, with his next son, so too he fails and is viewed as a sinning person. Yehuda's ideology fails. Yehuda has to confront that in new circumstances his way of life doesn't always stand up. But more than that, Yehuda has to learn to take responsibility. And here in the next story we find a first glimpse of Yehuda taking responsibility. When he acknowledges that he was the one who was responsible for the mishap with Tamar, that he was the one who had relations with her, and that she is pregnant with his child or children. The first time Yehuda 
has to confront a new reality, a reality of taking responsibility. Yosef too is sent to Mitzrayim and begins in his path of contending with a new culture, a new reality. And seemingly, initially, successfully. But since Yosef is lacking that sense of responsibility, he finds himself very soon in a touchy situation with his master's wife, which brings him to a downfall and to be put in jail. Here again, Yosef has the opportunity with the two servants of the king to get out, but he's lacking something. He is lacking in his recognition of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. When he resolves the dreams of these two servants, the Sarah Tabachim and Sarah Mashkim, he does not stress the fact that the resolution to their dreams is from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Only two years later, when he is taken out of jail to come and try to resolve the dreams of Paro, here Yosef finally shows a sense of responsibility, a sense of recognition from where his powers come. He repeats again and again to Paro that his dream is a message from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that there is a leadership of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and then is able to present a direction of how to contend with the challenge facing Paro and Mitzrayim. Here Yosef is given the opportunity once again to take a position of leadership, to lead the Egyptian people, take his thoughts, his ideals, his visions, but this time with responsibility, this time with an understanding of the complexity and the difficulty contending to people. At the same time, Yehuda, who obviously returns to his family, once again is faced with a challenge of leadership. After the brothers return from their first visit to Mitzrayim, and Yaakov refuses to send Binyamin with them, Ruvain initially attempts to appease Yaakov and fails. It is Yosef who, with his regained skills of leadership, goes ahead and appeases Yaakov. How does Yosef succeed in doing this? Yosef succeeds by taking responsibility. He takes personal responsibility for the well-being of his brother Binyamin. This personal responsibility receives a far greater expression in the beginning of Parshat Miketz, Parshat Vayigash. Beginning of Parshat Vayigash, here we find that Yehuda himself steps forward to Yosef, to this 
leader of Egypt, and does two things. First of all, he offers himself in place of Binyamin for a servant in payment for the seeming theft of the silver cup. But furthermore, and more importantly, Yehuda expresses his concern, his care for his father, for the hardship that Binyamin's not returning will pose to his father. It is this point that gets Yosef so emotionally attached. Yosef, who saw Yehuda as callous, as uncaring to his father, recognizes the change in Yehuda, recognizes how sensitive Yehuda has become, and understands that Yehuda now is a responsible leader. This is what leads both Yehuda and Yosef to become the leaders of their family and the leaders in the early stages of Klal Yisrael. It is an ideology, an ideology that leads them with intensity, with fervor, forward to build, to create. And at the same time, they are now responsible people. They understand that leadership does not focus just on the leader, on the person himself, but that leadership actually means caring, understanding the troubles, the hardships of others. Leadership means serving others. Leadership means bringing others to an improved position. This is expressed very strongly at the time when Yaakov comes down to Mitzrayim and he sends none other than Yehuda ahead of him to establish the settlement of w- in which they will be living. Here, Yehuda and Yosef cooperate. Yehuda bringing the ideological, spiritual aspects into the community being built. The Horot Lefanav, he is settling, creating a Beit Midrash, while Yosef brings the physical aspects of their new home into the picture. And here we find that when both have an ideology, both work for the good of the entire family, both are sensitive to the needs of others, here their leadership is successful, here they both see bracha. Uh, thank you to Harav uh, Moshe Eberman. Uh, back to the parsha. The uh, after Yosef discloses himself to the brothers and cries, it says that And the brothers could not answer him, for they were um, astonished. They were. Uh, frightened perhaps and they were they were silenced in front of him Rashi quotes 
a Mamar Chazal about this, about this Pasuk. Very striking Mamar. Oilanu miyom adin, oilanu miyom atochacha. It's, it's not a comment, it's an exclamation. After reading this Pasuk, so Chazal said, Woe is to us from the day of judgment, and woe is to us from the day of rebuke. Look, Yosef, who is the youngest of all the brothers. And yet the brothers couldn't answer him. They had nothing to say. They were struck silent, struck dumb. For they were, they were astounded. They were, uh, I can't think of a good way to translate the word, nivhalu. They were panicked before him. When God comes on the day of judgment, the ultimate day of judgment, and will rebuke each one according to his own measure, so much more so will we, will we be struck dumb because of it. So the Sri Deesh, Rabbi Chiyo Yaakov Weinberg, had two questions. He said, first of all, this is called here in this in this Mama Chazal, it's talking about Tochacha, rebuke. Where did Yosef rebuke the brothers? He didn't rebuke the brothers. He said to them, Don't worry, no problem, I love you. There's no rebuke here. He didn't say to them, Why did you sell me? He said to them, Don't worry about why you sold me. There's no rebuke here. So why is this Yom Tochacha? Two, why is God going to rebuke us the Yom Adin? Yom Adin is the end. Yom Adin is the day in which God dispenses final punishment and reward. Svidash asked, rebuke, the mitzvah of Tochacha is a mitzvah to rebuke somebody that he should do tshuva. But if it's after the time of tshuva, why is God rebuking? Call echad ve'echad each person according to his measure. You shouldn't rebuke them, you should just give them the exardin, give them the, the decree. Justice, it's the day of justice, not the day of rebuke. The Svidash answered, each question, one, the first question answers the second. Rebuke here doesn't mean a, a admonition to persuade us to change our ways. Here you're dealing in the ultimate, the ultimate rebuke. The tochacha of Yosef is not that he told them you were bad people, but that he showed them that he had, that he was noble. He showed them that he had nothing against them, that he embraced them. That was the rebuke. It's not, it's not what we call rebuke. Maybe the word rebuke is the wrong word here. Tochacha. Tochacha is from the Shavash of Lohochiach Mashal. When facing Yosef's magnanimity, so their embarrassment, they were abashed. Their, 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 their profound feelings of, of total inadequacy were magnified. If before they somehow lived with their sin, but now when pushing their sin to Yosef, in the face of Yosef's treatment of them now, there was no greater tochacha than that. It, it, it broadcast in their own eyes the enormity of their sins. And there was nothing that they could say. And what is the value of that nothing? Not that they would now do tshuva. Hopefully they would do tshuva. But the, the value of that nothing to say was what we call yirat haromamut. It's, it's, it's called the, the awe of when you, you, you poor little miserable thing stand in front of someone who is so much greater than you. And if that's true for Yosef and his brothers, after all, all 
flesh and blood, then so much more so, so much more so, so much more so, Elif al Amim, when we stand before God, and we have our sins which we've gotten used to, and we will be faced with God's, it's the day of judgment, but we're faced with God's mercy, and God's love, and we'll be able to compare, to juxtapose, our own miserable selves to God's greatness, so that's the Tochacha, and the consequence is, Yirat HaRomamut, that we will be, we will be filled with the awe, the incredible feeling of our own worthlessness in front of God's greatness, that's the Oyulanu Miyoma Din Oyulanu Miyoma Tochacha, which this Mama Chazal was learning from the behavior of the brothers before, before Yosef. And I'll leave you with one other uh, short little vote. When Yosef is convincing the brothers that it's him, he says, you see, it's Kifi Hamedaber Enechem. You see, it is my mouth speaking to you. So Rashi explains, what, what, what does he mean? What, what, what is that, what, what's he trying to say? How does that prove anything? Rashi quotes, Bilashon HaKodesh. Kifi Hamedaber Enechem, I'm speaking to you in Hebrew. Till now, he spoke to them in Egyptian with a translator. But now, he threw everybody out of the room. He spoke to them directly. He spoke to them in Hebrew, of course. So you say, look, you say, I'm speaking Hebrew, so that's how you know I'm really Yosef. So the Ramban rejects, he says, why can't Yosef know Hebrew? I mean, he's the king. He's an educated person, international center, Mitzrayim's the center of the world. Presumably, they spoke more than one language, so it could be he knew Hebrew as well. I'm sure there were people who spoke Hebrew. Uh, fact, there was a translator beforehand. So, uh, and Yosef was, uh, it's expected of kings, noblemen, that they should have good educations. So the fact that he spoke Hebrew doesn't prove anything. The Ramban doesn't understand why Hebrew should be a proof here. Rabbi Yonatan Eipschitz answered as follows. He said, I have another question. He says, how come the brothers didn't recognize Yosef by his voice? The Chazal say they didn't recognize his face because he was young when he'd left. He didn't have a beard, and now he had a beard. And therefore, that changed his face. He was disguised. But his voice, you should recognize. The Gemara says that Tfiyut Eina Dekala, recognition, voice recognition, is something which is very, very powerful. Uh, if, uh, if someone has disappeared... We need to know whether he's dead or not in order to permit his wife to be married. A serious issue. So if voice recognition is considered to be a recognition of the person, you, someone saw this person die, they don't know who he is, but they recognize his voice. His face was covered, but they recognize his voice. It's the man's wife, it's the wife's husband, so they can testify. Voice recognition is considered to be very accurate in halacha. How come the brothers didn't recognize Yosef's voice? And Yosef just answered because he spoke in Egyptian. Voice recognition only works if you speak in the language which we're familiar with. But when you speak another language, it affects everything. It affects your inflection. Voice recognition is, is a combination of many, many subtle factors. And when speaking in a foreign language, everything is different. So till now, they didn't recognize him. When he spoke in Hebrew, wasn't that Hebrew was the proof? When he spoke in Hebrew, they recognized his voice. It was the old Yosef. And that's what he was saying as exactly. That's what it doesn't say in the Pasuk, I spoke Hebrew. It says, Kifi, I'm You recognize my mouth. The Gemara explains why they recognized his mouth. Since he spoke in Hebrew... They recognized his mouth. Clever vote to explain uh, one pasuk in this week's Pasha. Shabbat Shalom. Sunday, I remind you, is Tanit Asara B'Tevet. We'll be back next week with another Erev Shabbat program and starting on Monday with the regular programming for KMTT. You've been listening to KMTT, the Torah podcast. Ki Mitzion, Teitzei Torah, Udvar Hashem, Mi Yerushalayim.